Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about maybe sending a quick email to check in before you conclude that everyone you love is dead. This week, we're discussing long journeys, difficult separations, and poor decision-making, and Pericles, Prince of Tyre, plus the best brothel scenes in Shakespeare. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 33, Mediterranean Blues Cruise. The king, my father, did in Tarsus leave me, till cruel Cleon with his wicked wife did seek to murder me. And having wooed a villain to attempt it, whom having drawn to do't, a crew of pirates came and rescued me, brought me to Metaline. But good sir, whither will you have me? Why do you weep? It may be you think me an imposture, no good faith. I am the daughter to King Pericles, if good King Pericles be. James, would you be so kind as to give us a plot summary of this interesting play? I think we can say it's interesting, at least. Well, Will, in the manner of great literature from Sophocles all the way down to Masterpiece Theater, our play opens with the chorus and erstwhile medieval poet John Gower stepping onto the stage to introduce the story of our hero Pericles. Now, Will, I know you are a scholar of the ancient world. This is not the Pericles of Athens, famous for his role in the Peloponnesian War, but it is, in fact, Pericles of the Phoenician city of Tyre in present-day Lebanon, a young prince who is single, ready to mingle, and tends to only get on ships that go down on sea, as we will discover. Gower sets the stage with Pericles arriving in Antioch to seek a bride from the aptly named King Antiochus. But there are a few catches to his plans. First, Antiochus is having a secret incestuous affair with his own daughter. This daughter is, Will, can you guess? In fact, Pericles' potential match. (laughs) Second, Antiochus' conditions to win her hand are unusual, to say the least. Suitors have to solve a ridiculously complicated riddle to win her hand. Third, anyone who fails to solve the riddle is executed, as the bevy of speared heads in Antiochus' palace testifies. Pericles, however, is strangely undaunted by all of these gigantic red flags and takes on the riddle which ends up being a painfully obvious coded statement that Antiochus is sleeping with his daughter. Now, you would think that this is a piece of information that the depraved Antiochus would want to hide, but apparently not. In fact, Antiochus plans to murder his suitors even if they don't figure his puzzle out. So maybe he's not exactly worried about revealing his evil deeds like a cut-rate Bond villain. Anyways, Pericles suggests he knows the answer, but he asks the king for 40 days to think it over, then skips town while Antiochus sends an assassin after him. Upon returning home, Pericles' friend Helicanus suggests that he get out of town for a while on a Mediterranean cruise in order to dodge Antiochus' goons. Pericles assents and leaves Helicanus in charge. Pericles sails first to the starving city of Tarsus in modern-day Turkey, where he wins some friends by giving his stores of grain to the ruler Cleon and his wife Dionysa. He then heads off only to be shipwrecked in the vicinity of Pentapolis in Libya. Some fishermen rescue him, haul up his rusty suit of armor, and take him to King Simonides' tournament, which will decide who gets to marry Simonides' beautiful daughter, Thysa. Naturally, Pericles wins, and he and Thysa happily wed and conceive a child. They set out for Tyre and immediately get hit by a storm just as Thysa's water breaks. She gives birth to a daughter named Marina, since she is born at sea, and apparently Thysa dies of complications. 
The sailors tell the grief-stricken Pericles that they need to toss Thysa's body overboard to placate the gods, which Pericles reluctantly agrees to, placing Thysa in a casket and dropping her into the drink. Now, instead of going to Tyre, which is theoretically closer to Libya, Pericles instead decides to stop at Tarsus to drop off Marina with Cleon and Dionysa, because he fears that Marina won't survive the trip home and needs to be nursed. He pledges to return and then moves on. Meanwhile, Thysa's body ends up in the Greek city of Ephesus, where an enterprising doctor finds her, intuits that she is still alive, and brings her back to health, upon which a grief-stricken Thysa, assuming her family went down with a ship, declares that she will become a chaste priestess in the temple of Diana. Back in Tarsus, Marina grows up into a stunning beauty in the ensuing years, during which her father inexplicably never returned to pick her up. In fact, Marina becomes so beautiful and so virtuous that a jealous Dionysa decides to murder her, feeling that Marina will always outshine her own daughter. Just when Marina's assassin is about to do the deed, a group of pirates miraculously, and I stress the square quotes around miraculously, show up and kidnap her. Marina is promptly sold to a brothel on the Greek Isle of Lesbos, where her virginity is highly prized by the pimp and madam that run the brothel. Dionysa's assassin, meanwhile, tells Dionysa that Marina died when the pirates attacked. Yet, in a comedic turn in an otherwise grotesque situation, the efforts of the pimp and his madam to auction Marina's virginity off to the highest bidder backfire dramatically when the chaste Marina manages to convince all of her johns that they should instead forsake debauchery and pursue virtuous lives, threatening the stability of Mytilene's sex trade. They decide to cut their losses and make Marina tutor young women in music and courtly behavior instead. Finally, Pericles gets his act together and heads back to Tarsus, hears his daughter is dead, and sets sail almost insane with grief, though he doesn't pull a full King Lear, it should be noted. Eventually, he winds up in Mytilene and meets the governor, who introduces him to Marina. In the course of their conversation, they happily discover that they are father and daughter. An overjoyed Pericles then has a vision of the goddess Diana, who tells him to seek out her temple in Ephesus where he promptly goes and finds Thysa in one of the hastier wrap-up scenes in the canon. Gower then appears to conclude the story, telling us that Marina will marry the governor of Mytilene, and cheerily ending by telling us that Cleon and Dionysa were killed by their own people in a revolt for their crime sometime later. And therefore will QED, we know, that the virtuous are rewarded, and evildoers always suffer. Except we never really circle back to Antiochus and his daughter. I guess uh, villainy is rewarded or at least perpetuated in that case. But one of many things for us to discuss, James, in this interesting play, to say the least. Interesting is a good word for it. Now, Will, in terms of our starting point for this conversation, this play is a bit strange And I don't say that exactly meaning that it's strange in the sense of bizarre or weird things happening, although we will get to that too, to be clear. What I mean is, if you remember when we talked about Merry Wives of Windsor, we had a whole discussion about how it felt like in that play Shakespeare was really experimenting with a new mode and doing something he hadn't done before. And I think at this point we can recognize that Shakespeare really has never gone back to that mode. This play has a little bit of the same vibe to me where it's not like the other comedies, right? It doesn't have the same... It's, I mean, it's just not really funny. And I, I mean, I think you and I have maybe unpopular opinions about whether or not the other comedies are funny or not. But this play doesn't even really feel like it's trying to be funny. 
but it's classed with the comedies because it's a happy ending. Nonetheless, by virtue of that happy ending, it's not really a tragedy either. So it doesn't really seem like it fits very well in any of the other modes or genres that Shakespeare has been working in up to now. So my first question for you is, what's going on here? What is Shakespeare trying to do with this play? So tough question in some ways. I think this play does have at least one funny scene, uh, which is the brothel piece, which we'll talk about later. But for the most part, it's um, a bit of an episodic adventure, which is certainly new in our reading of Shakespeare. That You have a little bit of this kind of Odyssey vibe that's going on here. Mm-hmm. I know some critics have classed it as a romance, quote-unquote, where there's a little bit more magic, there's a little bit of adventure, you, know, you, have, you have prophecies and riddles, you have the setting in antiquity. You get the sense that this is meant to be, at the same time, a simple morality play and a rousing adventure story in which Pericles circles the Mediterranean, gets into adventures and crazy situations, and ultimately, as you very movingly stated in your excellent plot summary, virtue is rewarded and villainy is punished. So you can see this is maybe a, a light form of entertainment, but with the pretensions of having a serious message. I think that's sort of what's going on here. This doesn't strike me as a deeply intentionally crafted and written piece of work. There's definitely a, a plot. There's definitely sort of a course of action that you follow throughout it. But it's messy. It's episodic. One thing doesn't necessarily logically lead to the next. You're just kind of watching a series of events happen with um, a limited mm-hmm. number of characters. That's sort of my impression of it. But I think it's trying to be a adventure story with a nice little moral at the end. That's my impression. What do you think about it? I mean, what kind of genre do you think this actually is, and, and how would you analogize it for our, uh, well, our crowd today? <laughs> this feels like the kind of play, like if, if this were a movie or if we were talking about a director or something, right? I think this would be the kind of movie where the marketing people would be like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, well, it's not funny, but it's not a drama, and it's, it's sort of got an adventure vibe, but there's not really that much adventuring that happens, right? It's more like, you know, these scenes are, it's, it's sort of turgid, I, I find. It doesn't ever feel like we're truly focused on any one character, right? Pericles doesn't change at all. And those, that can work. I mean, I think, I'm going to pull out a, a somewhat obscure film reference, Will, but I don't know if you've ever seen This Happy Breed. I'm no, sure you have not no, I haven't. Yeah. named, by the way, obviously after a Shakespeare quote, but it is a post-war, pre-epic David Lean film. It's like based on a Noel Coward play, I believe. And it's just about the lives of this family in post-war Britain. Or I think it's, sorry, I think it's actually going through the war because it covers, similarly, it covers a long period of time. And actually, the movie ends up being quite moving and, and quite good. Mm. But similar to this, it doesn't seem like it quite fits in in any particular clear genre. Another example maybe that might be more evident to our listeners, I don't know if you ever saw, oh my god, Will, I'm going to not remember what the name is somehow. Do you remember that movie with Matt Damon and Emily Blunt with the hats? Yes, the fedoras, the something bureau, the replacement the bureau. The replacement bureau, the adjustment bureau. The adjustment bureau. Yes, the adjustment, the, bureau. The adjustment yes. bureau. That that was a movie that I remember had a similar 
vibe where you're, I'm watching the movie. I'm like, what is this? They're, it's like a romance. They're falling in love. It's kind of a thriller, but it's dramatic. But also there's not much action. There's a lot of hats. You know, it's got all these sci-fi elements, but it's not really a sci-fi movie. You know, it's, it's got that similar kind of vibe. And it's funny to say because both of those movies, I, like actually I think The Adjustment Bureau is pretty good. It basically works in the end. And this Happy Breed, also more obscure, better movie, I think, just older, also really works. You get to the end of that movie and you're like, oh, wow, like that was, that was really good. But they suffer by virtue of how difficult they are to define. Mm-hmm. At least insofar, and maybe, Will, maybe we should talk about this too, because there is a question, I think, of what our own expectations play in how we interact with literature. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, look, I do not think that this is the biggest problem with this play, to be clear. I do not think that our confusion about what the play is, is the problem. But it does make it a little bit harder to access at first. You know, I think where you're having those first couple acts where you're like, I don't understand what I'm reading really. Like, I, you know, where you have to hang with it to sort of get to the end, to get to that point of being like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, that, that worked basically. I think it's just harder to do that when the work doesn't conform to anything that you easily recognize. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so it does. I think that you're set up here for a hero's journey almost from the beginning, right? And it's the classic situation of solving the riddle of the Sphinx, going through the maze with the Minotaur. That's sort of the situation that you end up with with Antiochus and his riddle. But your expectations are almost immediately confounded because Pericles just hauls out of there and decides to uh, head back to Tyre and you never really hear about Antiochus again except in a sort of canned way. So almost immediately you think the play is heading in this one direction and then it veers off in a series of feints and wanderings throughout the ancient Near East, which isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but the real problems with the play fundamentally I think you can deal with like some of the flat characters here and the sort of psychological unrealism, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But it's really funny when you get to all of these passages where Gower at the beginning and end of each act sums up what's been going on, but he doesn't just sum it up. He actually tells you substantively what has been happening in the action. And there's usually no real demonstration of what's going on. So like, the Dionysa decision to go after Pericles' daughter, Mm -hmm. Marina, you feel like you're missing a scene there. It's almost like it's being jammed in where it's like, oh yeah, and then suddenly she became really jealous of her and decided to have one of her goons try and kill Marina off. Or similarly, with some of the jousting scenes when they're at Pentapolis, you have this lengthy queue up with all of these knights And you just sort of get it narrated to you or declared that, oh yeah, and Pericles won. You almost expect this to have a little bit more, if you're going to set up a whole bunch of these episodes with adventuresome moments and visual storytelling, you would sort of hope that that would be shown on stage. And I haven't really done enough digging into the dramaturgy of this one, but I imagine that they probably did show a little bit more of the action sequences and and all of that just to make it entertaining. But as it is, there's a lot of uh, tell, not show. Well, I, I will say, Will, on, on that point, one thing that I actually thought was really interesting, and I don't know if it works, 
And this is, I think, part of where we suffer from reading and not from watching, because I, I like I don't know if, if it would work watching it or not. But I was really interested that Shakespeare does this dumb show thing throughout, right, where Gower is talking about something, and then you've got people on stage acting out these little scenes, but there's no dialogue. It's just to visualize what he's saying in his monologue that's just advancing the plot. Yep. I thought that was really interesting. And I, I think we've seen a few things that are a little bit like that, but in isolated mm. instances, whereas here it feels like it's really a feature of the way he's structuring the play, if only because it's taking place over such a long period of time and he has to get you from one place to another effectively. But I thought that was kind of interesting in the way that, you know, it's like watching a montage in a movie, right? Yeah. That's sort of yeah. giving you just images to fill in some information without needing to like stop and do a full scene. And I just thought it was cool that he was, even at this late in his career, right? We're fully in the back quarter of his work mm. at this point. I just thought that it was cool that he was working with these new ideas, these new forms of storytelling or forms of moving the plot forward. That being said, I think the use of them further to your point, illustrates what seems to be fundamentally the problem here. When, when I was thinking about like what genre does this most closely conform to, the thing that kept coming into my mind is like, well, you know, it's kind of like a biopic, but of the sort of biopic that you don't like because it's trying to cover the whole cradle-to-grave experience of someone's life, and suddenly you're dropped into one scene after another just because you have to cover every major event but it doesn't necessarily feel like it adds up to a coherent message or a coherent idea. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And you almost get the sense the use of the dumb show is actually kind of funny because it's often to write the scene or demonstrate the scene where you're almost, you almost get the sense that Shakespeare just didn't want to write it because it's tedious and boring. So for instance, when Pericles goes back to Tarsus and Cleon shows him his daughter's tomb, the fake tomb, uh, mm-hmm. because we know she, you know, that Marina is actually still alive and in Mytilene. That's one of the dumb show sequences. And then there's another sequence where the dumb show is Pericles and Simonides in Pentapolis and Thysa having a baby and communicating via letter while they're on the ship and all of this stuff. And you're just like, oh yeah, this is just tedious to write. It's boring. Let's like move on to the next thing. Unfortunately, I think the way the Gower narrations work is you actually miss out on the duels, the Mm -hmm. development of any sort of emotional pathos, the jealousy, any sort of dramatic arc to most of it. It feels very um, unsatisfying in this way, but it also felt like Shakespeare was trying to land the plane of this Mm -hmm. not very great winding story. And I think that goes to actually a little bit of the background of this one, which is a lot of literary critics think that Shakespeare only wrote the last three acts and that the first two were written by his neighbor, George Wilkins, who was a minor Jacobian playwright, wrote some pamphlets, was also accused of being a pimp. So the brothel scenes may have had uh, some added verisimilitude because of that. But a lot of people think Yeah, this was a collaboration. Yes, they're sort of equal partners. The tone sort of shifts between Act 2 and Act 3 and the rest of the play. But you almost get the sense Shakespeare's been handed this story. And incidentally, we know Wilkins wrote a novel or proto-novel about Pericles. You get the sense that Shakespeare's been handed the story and wants to land the plane and sort of Mm -hmm. finish it up in a satisfying or semi-satisfying way. I could be speculating too much about his intent, but that's basically what I understand the 
critical reaction to at least partially be is this shared authorship thing, which might explain why if you're the guy doing the rewrite of the play or the the screenplay, you know, you're going to try and um, iron things out and, and just get the project done. So James, I have a question for you. I, I came across some comments in some of the introductory essay and, and my other Wikipedia level research here that said that this is actually one just of the need to com- observe for our listeners one more time to be clear the only secondary source consulted for this podcast is wikipedia <laughs> yes yeah there, there's no uh there's no in-depth we're we're not james shakespeare scholars in any uh deep and lasting way i have to say i have uh, at times will betrayed the podcast by reading the harold bloom essays but uh we need not speak of that Sorry, yes, continue. Yeah, the, you can you can ignore the Shakespeare books on my shelf. It's a good thing this isn't a uh, filmed live podcast on YouTube or something like that. Regardless, one of the things that I came across was a comment that this was one of the more popular plays of Shakespeare's lifetime, and yet it's very very seldom performed today. Like extremely extremely rarely performed today, and yet critics are interested in it. They find it to be this curiosity. I was wondering what your take on that would be. What's the gap here? Why do you think people enjoyed this at one point and don't seem to enjoy it now? Or more particularly, why don't actors enjoy putting it on now? And maybe give us a little of your insight into that and sort of planning for the audience, thinking about in the motion picture business or the the stage business. I'm curious what your take is. Well, those are they're kind of two different questions, right? The, why do actors not like to play this play and I, you know I, I i'm gonna answer here without knowing for sure that actors don't like to put on this play but i can imagine why they wouldn't which is that the characters are really really uninteresting right there's not exactly that much to grab onto as an actor i don't think i mean contrast this will with timon of athens a very bad play that we read recently i can still imagine an actor playing timon being like well what's what's going on with this character what do I need to do to justify to myself the behavior, like how this person is acting and like why he's acting in such a self-evidently self-destructive way? You know, there is something there in his behavior. There's an extremity and I won't call it complexity, but let's say a potential complexity to his behavior that I think could be fun for an actor. This play I find... There's not that many fun scenes. I I know we're going to talk about what I would say is probably the only fun scene in the play for our third topic. But there isn't that much that's fun going on. And there's really no depth to the characters. I don't know. Maybe Dionysa is a fun character to play in some way because of her weird heel turn. Right? But there's really no villain here. There's no one that's like fun to chew on scenery as. Meanwhile, Pericles doesn't really have much depth to him he keeps making just the worst decisions over and over but we're constantly told that he's a great guy and a great prince right and then at the end of the day the moral of the story is incredibly simplistic so i think that would both go towards why actors might not want to put it on and also why not only actors but also directors producers anyone who's a creative stakeholder like i think it would be I would expect that a lot of people in that position would look at this play and be like, you know, there's not much here to, to get into. 
I think on a similar note, I think that can help us understand a little bit of why it might have been popular at that time, but you know, but doesn't hold up now, right? Because I think obviously there are plenty of movies that or plays or whatever art form you want, novels that are popular now that are simplistic and uninteresting and and lack depth. But I think that those are things that are of this moment in time. Whereas for something that was written in the 1600s to be played in 2022, there's got to be something really deep there to justify doing that. That goes beyond, oh, this is fun. Because we've got plenty of artists who are doing things that are just fun right now that are more, at the very least, more current, right? I don't think this play has anything. I'm going to warn all the true bardolators to close their ears here. I don't think there's anything in this play that's like deeply human in some moving way in the way that many of Shakespeare's other plays have. Yeah, it's not even goofily entertaining using some of the same tropes and plot devices because... There's a lot that happens here. The preposterous number of shipwrecks, cameos by pirates. There's a ton of mistaken identities. Shakespeare plays with all of these things, but it's just a lot more viscerally entertaining in almost any of the other plays, I would say, compared to this. Even something that's pretty unimpressive on the whole, like Comedy of Errors, very simple, basically a a one-to-two joke play Mm -hmm. that plays it to the hilt, that's much more entertaining, in my view, than this, which feels weirdly peripatetic, not necessarily terribly well-constructed or conceived, not especially funny, except for a couple core scenes. And if you want to get the sense of Shakespeare's invention, even of these little tropes and techniques that he uses, you're better off almost watching even the less than good plays that are on the bottom half of our list, I would say, yeah. compared to this. Like you'd actually get a more enjoyable experience and might actually learn something. This almost feels like a pastiche of random techniques that Shakespeare used. Well, well, and I think gel- that's, gelled together bizarrely. I think that is why it has this critical interest you know, two lit crit types or Shakespeare critic types, right? I think that's why the play is probably interesting in that it is a Shakespeare play that is not good, that nonetheless shows him kind of messing around with different things that he hasn't done before and probably prefiguring some of the future work. Not, you know, maybe in the same way that like Titus Andronicus might be interesting, right? Like Titus Andronicus, not a good play, but it was his first effort at tragedy. So therefore it has some interest because of that. I think that like what is interesting to a literary critic or a scholar of Shakespeare that they will find in this play does not necessarily apply to the vast majority of consumers of Shakespeare Mm -hmm. and people who are professionals who work with Shakespeare, by which I mean like actors and directors and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I I think to distill it all, it sounds like, and and I think I would agree with this thesis, Actors and directors are looking for something that generates pathos, meaning, entertainment value. They're looking for something that they can hold on to and and enjoy doing as artists. Scholars are interested in the mechanics, the influences, the provenance of this play and how it fits together. And And how it fits into the broader scheme of his work, too. Right, 
Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. You can see how, I mean, at least when I was reading this, you could see how it's some serious editing, which I would expect probably happened with this one. I mean, we only have a few, I think we only have like one surviving copy of this play, and it was on one of the bad quartos, if I'm not mistaken. So one of the drafts, basically, that you know, whatever, was cobbled together. But one of the things that I think is interesting about it in that sense is I could see a director back in Jacobian-era England taking some real license here. Maybe they show some of the jousting and duels on stage. Maybe they show more of the drama and action, uh, and they take the dumb show as a license to expand on some of these things. I can see how it could actually be like a reasonably entertaining night at the theater if you're looking for the latest and maybe not greatest, but at least certainly passable play Mm -hmm. by William Shakespeare and George Wilkins, if that is in fact the combination of authors here. But that's a different matter than whether it's entertaining or interesting in 2021 or pretty much any time between now and then. Incidentally, one person who hated this play was Ben Johnson, who is a great champion of Shakespeare a generation or half a generation later. He referred to it, I think, as, if not Drek, he was referring (laughs) to it as basically just hot garbage in a poem he did where he was bashing his own work and sort of making fun of himself. I believe he was comparing his work on a play he did not think was very good of his own to Pericles, Prince of Tyre, in terms of how terrible it was. I will, let me just add one more element to this conversation, Will, and then we can move on. I I do want to note, like, To be clear, it's not that every moment of every day, every actor or director or artist or whatever is looking for the profound experience of playing Hamlet or something, right? Like Clint Eastwood made Unforgiven and he also made Dirty Harry, right? I mean, Dirty Harry is a great movie, so maybe that's not even a great example, but... Space Cowboys. Exactly. I think there's plenty of times when it's like, oh, I get to have a gun and shoot people and be a badass? Yeah, I'm in. Oh, I get to wear awesome costumes and crack jokes and, like, fart at parties? Yeah, I'm in, right? Like, there's definitely an element of you want to play things that are fun or you want to make a movie that's fun or you want to have fun writing the jokes in your book or whatever, right? And, like, that's... It's not like every single artistic endeavor you pursue has to be the highest of high art, right? I think there's a a variety. Yeah. You want to understand what you're doing, yeah. I think, at the end of the day, too. Here, I think it would be very hard to ring out a, even in Comedy of Errors, just picking that at random since I mentioned it earlier, at least you know in all of the physical comedy of that play what is supposed to make the audience laugh, what is supposed to be entertaining, and what's funny about it. It's yeah. a case of mistaken identities. You know, People are getting unfairly imprisoned and beaten and slapped around when they shouldn't be. There's sort of an inversion of who's in power and who's not in power. You don't have to do that much legwork to understand what's going on here. Here, it feels like the moral bit is kind of tacked on. The righteous get rewards, but the depraved Antiochus never gets really punished and is forgotten and is an afterthought. Everything that happens in the middle is a weird journey. The characters yeah. are a bit flat. There's nothing to grab onto yeah. if you're, you're an actor and a director here. But to that point, right, someone in 1606 or whatever exact year this was written and first put on, like, you know, maybe back then Burbage was like, yeah, I get to play Pericles. Amazing. That sounds fun. <laughs> right? Yeah. But I think that same actor today 
is not super excited about playing the main character of a not very good play from 400 years ago, even though they might (laughs) be excited about playing an action hero in a decently bad action movie of 2022. Yeah, I I think that's totally right. And the only thing I'd add to conclude that is actors back then also had to eat, you know, and the play going audience was quite massive, as we've discussed on the pod before in London at this time. I mean, surprisingly large, right? Like people actually are going to the theater every week when the theater isn't closed due to the plague or whatever. So uh, there is a need to have content and keep producing stuff that keeps actors employed and keeps butts in seats. I don't want to necessarily say that that's how Shakespeare thought of this. Maybe he thought that this was some great artistic achievement of his, but it doesn't really feel like it. It feels like this is just, uh, you know, tuning up a play for the audience and um, making a couple bucks on it. You know, again, that's just my feeling reading it is that there's a lot of sort of hurrying along the story. There's not much interiority. It doesn't sort of reach the heights or the low comedy, amusing depths of some of the other plays. So yeah, yeah, I I think that's basically a good explanation. That being said, Will, there is one bit of good low comedy in this play, which I think we should talk about. So as discussed in my plot summary, there is Marina who, in one of the weird, dark, but not acknowledged to be dark moments of this play, is sold into sexual slavery by a bunch of pirates. Side note, another adventure with pirates, Will, in Shakespeare. Uh, however, Marina, uh, when she is brought to the brothel where she is in theory going to be, you know, essentially going to be sex trafficked, she proves to be so virtuous and noble and so self-confident, really, too, that rather than actually being a prostitute, she instead convinces every potential customer of hers to live better lives. If I may just um, share one, uh, one little piece here. Did you ever hear the like? No, nor never shall do in such a place as this, she being once gone. But to have divinity preached there, did you ever dream of such a thing? No, no. Come, I'm for no more bawdy houses. Shall us go hear the vestals sing? I'll do anything now that is virtuous. But I'm out of the road of rutting forever. Well, I had rather than twice the worth of her that she'd ne'er come here. Fie, fie upon her. She's able to freeze the god Priapus and undo a whole generation. We must either get her ravished or be rid of her. When she should do for clients her fitment and do me the kindness of our profession, she has me her quirks, her reasons, her master reasons, her prayers, her knees, that she would make a Puritan of the devil if he should cheapen a kiss of her. Faith, I must ravish her, or she'll disfurnish us of all our cavaliers and make our swear as priests. Oh, the pox upon that green sickness for me. Faith, there's no way to be rid on, but by the way to the pox. It becomes very funny, even to the point of the pimp and the bod, Going like, oh my God, like, she's destroying our business model. Like, we got to get rid of her. So I I actually found this scene to be very funny. But it also inspired in me the thought that we haven't seen a good brothel scene in a while, Will. But we do have some brothel scenes in Shakespeare. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to ask you, is this the best brothel scene in Shakespeare? Or is there another or even a few others that you would call out as being superior. I laughed out loud at this one, not going to lie. I thought it was uh, the best part of the play. And uh, I think it may be the best brothel scene of any of them. I'm going to go in and make that claim. I also chuckled a bit when Alcibiades 
brought all of his prostitutes to Timon and, and said he was going to infect Athens with venereal disease. That was also amusing. But when I'm surveying here, we had all of the scenes with prostitution, particularly Doll Tearsheet in the Henry IV plays. You had a certain degree of uh, you have courtesans popping up in Comedy of Errors and in Othello. Courtesan and Comedy of Errors, that's pretty funny, too, because that's the whole chain situation. Yes. There's a gold chain. That was pretty funny as well. But I have to say, the focus on basically virtue being the upending, great disruptive thing that's going on in the scene is pretty hilarious to the point where they're desperate to come up with a solution. And they're like, well, I guess we can tutor young ladies. This woman seems like she has good breeding. She can teach young girls how to play music and hold good conversation. As if you would have a ladies' finishing school next to the cat house in Mytilene, which is a hilarious visual image to contemplate. But yeah, I I thought this was definitely the best brothel scene in Shakespeare. I think there's a sly and subtle commentary on the whorehouse economy in Shakespeare, Will, I have to say. right? There's this thing about she's depressing supply and preventing us from basically from like making a living. There's also the whole thing in Measure for Measure about how all the whorehouses are going to get shut down. Yeah. And then there's like the one rich patron who says like, no, you can't shut down the ones in the city or maybe it's on the outskirts of the city. I don't remember. Yeah, I think it's the suburbs. There's Lucio's whole thing about how, you know, you can't try to control this because this is just what people are going to do anyways. So if you penalize it, you're going to kill everyone. So we we haven't talked about this theme very much, but I I feel like at this point it is a legitimate theme that you could pull out what he's trying to say. Well, this is an interesting point, James, and I just want to add a little bit of um, in my copious research to prepare for this particular play. I wanted to um, just direct us back that Shakespeare may have had some experience in this business, not necessarily as a panderer or pimp himself, but he did live near this man, George Wilkins, who wrote the first two acts of this play, according to scholarly uh, convention. And George Wilkins was almost definitely a pimp or very, very likely. He ran an inn that happened to be down the street from where Shakespeare lived, and they were involved in a lawsuit together. They were material witnesses, and it was sort of noted that Wilkins was... um, you know, he owned an he was an innkeep and a a known procurer of women, as they say. Mm-hmm. So there is something sort of uh, interesting here. Clearly, this is like part of Shakespeare's world. We also know that frequently prostitutes were around the theaters of Elizabethan and Jacobian England, just because theaters tended to be disreputable places, often off to the side, but still accessible by the public. There's something kind of interesting here about Shakespeare's um, world and how he's incorporating it into the story. All of this, though, James, is to say, I'm kind of thinking that somebody needs to do a mashup of all of the brothel scenes in Shakespeare and turn it into a single play that's a commentary on um, you know, the sex work economy and a, a, a dark comedy. Uh, so I, I think that would actually be a, a pretty entertaining little dramatic project for somebody out there, though, you know. Who would want to undertake that project is a separate question. But there's to the Barclays community. Yes, an audience of dozens, dozens, in fact. All right. Well, Will, I think that about covers the very few interesting things to talk about with this play. But where do you rank it? Now that we've covered what we have to cover, where do you place this in the list? So perhaps unsurprisingly, it's definitely in the bottom 
quartile. In fact, I'm going to go even to be more precise. I think this is better than Edward III, but worse than Two Gentlemen of Verona. So it's going straight to the 32 spot. Wow, so Shakespeare's really really having a rough stretch right now. Hey, he's just trying to make a buck, which I respect. Apparently. I, Keep casting him, check player. Shakespeare. Don't hate the player, hate the game, James. Yeah, um, I'm looking at my list here as well, and... Hmm. I mean, I do think I enjoyed this play more than I enjoyed Timon of Athens. Did I enjoy it more than I enjoyed The Taming of the Shrew? That's a difficult question. And I think actually the answer is no. I'm, I'm a little torn here. I, I feel like it's, it's not an obvious no. But I think it is no. So I'm, I'm going to place mine third from the bottom here between Taming the Shrew and Timon of Athens. Interesting. So the only thing I would say, and then we can get on to our MVPs, it's not like this play is 100% garbage all the way through. I mean, we just talked about the brothel scene having some great moments and being very funny. I would also say that the recognition scene where Pericles sees and realizes that Marina is his daughter, there's some good stuff here, and I won't knock it on those grounds. I just think it doesn't really work together at all, and it feels bafflingly, or maybe not so bafflingly, uneven to me. You know what I would say, Will, is playing into my thinking about it here, is, like, it's more tolerable to read, I think, actually, than The Taming of the Shrew or Titus Andronicus or Two Gentlemen of Verona, for instance, mm. right? But all those plays have something fun or interesting in them. And I know we've just talked a little bit about the one fun brothel scene that maybe is the best brothel scene in Shakespeare. But basically, there's not much interesting in this mm. play. You know, at least Titus Andronicus has the character of Aaron the Moor, who's like such a scene-chewing villain, right? Mm-hmm. At least Taming of the Shrew has the Kate Petruchio relationship that is like very problematic, but has some funny moments, right? Mm-hmm. This play is just really kind of boring, I think. Even though it might be technically, it might technically work better, perhaps. So I think that's part of my issue with it, is I, I just don't find it to be interesting in a fundamental way. Mm. All that being said, I think I am going to name Marina the MVP just for the brothel scene. It's the only thing that sticks out in the play to me, and I, I found it very funny. And, you know, even though I know the play is named Pericles and Marina's only a relatively minor character in it, I don't really think Pericles does anything here to merit an MVP award. Yeah, I mean, I'll give him some credit for the uh, the recognition speech, which is well done and uh, worth reading. But I'm going to actually agree with you that it is in the brothel scene where the best character is to be found. But I think it's the bot, actually, which is the Madden. Ooh, uh, good one. Mostly because of the frantic effort to improvise a new business model for their failing, uh, <laughs> their failing, failing brothel. sex trafficking and brothel enterprise. Yes, indeed. Also interesting that the bod and the procurer, they do not actually get really punished, per se, in this story either. It would have been more funny to see them totally run out of business on these grounds. But hey. They're uh, just trying to make a buck, Will. You know, they yeah. got to eat. Just like the it, rest of us. It ain't easy, but it's necessary, as exactly. some famous individual once said about their profession. Except it's not necessary, to be clear. We do not endorse brothels in this podcast. 
So James, on that unsavory note, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? I do will. And this is unusually for me going to be a television recommendation. So I, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm not a big TV watcher, but I have recently been watching a French show called Call My Agent on Netflix. I believe in the original French, it, tra- it actually translates to like the 10th percent or 10 percent or something. It's a French comedy about an entertainment agency in Paris. And, you know, these agents represent famous French actors. And so every episode has a different, actually in real life, famous French actor who does a cameo and the episode centered around something going on with them. But then you're also following the various machinations of what's happening in this French agency. So probably partly I enjoy it because though not Hollywood, it sort of reflects that the dysfunction of Hollywood exists everywhere. There is such a thing as show business. Mm. But I just, you know, it's quite amusing, very, very droll and a nice reflection of the world of film. And I think it's especially fun knowing that these character actors or these actors they feature are in fact real. You know, it's, it's got that kind of extras vibe of people making fun of themselves if you've seen extras. So I've been enjoying it. And if you've got a Netflix subscription, it's, you know, they're hour long episodes. So it's pretty digestible. Um, and it's a lot of fun. Give us that recommendation one more time, James. That is the French television show Call My Agent available on Netflix. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, a serious discussion of the treachery of great men with Coriolanus. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.